Zach Voorhees blew the whistle on Google's push to create a clean and regularly sanitized news corpus. As we talked about in part one of our conversation, Google decided to no longer reflect the world we live in, but rather promote the world as they want it to be. In blacklisting certain Christian, conservative, and alternative health platforms, Google began to give each web page an eight score, ranking expertise, authority, and trust, which, considering the alliance between parts of big tech and big government, brings to mind the words of JFK. A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. In our interview, we explore how Google's page ranking is becoming a social credit score of sorts, the war against alternative health and anyone with vaccine hesitancy, and Zach's own vaccine injury. We talk about how the lab leak theory for COVID-19 was mocked and suppressed for months, and now it's seen as legitimate due to the overwhelming pride and hubris rearing its head over the pandemic, and the danger of power-hungry narcissism in big tech and parts of human nature. We also discuss the World Economic Forum's warning of a COVID-like cyber pandemic and how the elites could immunize the internet. Among other questions, we consider how might this approach to immunize the internet relate to the trend of dehumanization in the war on science? Could Google start locking our files? And is surveillance capitalism inevitable? I'm Sienna Mayhe, and this is Leaving the Left for Liberty. Let's get more specific and look at this through the lens of the pandemic. Um, one of the proposed AIs in these leaks was a clean and regularly sanitized news corpus. What does this mean and how might its meaning relate to today's obsession with sanitization and immunization? Um, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, there's like this disgust sort of like thing that we have. And if you turn on the disgust circuit in the brain, um, you can sever someone from something. Um, there's like this really interesting thing that I think Jordan Peterson said that was along the lines of um, any marriageable was, er, any marriage was savable unless the couples were disgusted with each other. And once that disgust started to uh, sink in, it, that was it, it was over. You, you can't come back from that. And, um, and what I've noticed is that there's been this growing thing on the left about contamination, this disgust for um, people, our fellow man. And what you see right here is sort of an embodiment of that, of how do we prevent the um, information systems at Google from being contaminated from this viral contagion of the mind uh, in the form of fake news and misinformation that they believe that they need to sanitize against its spread. It's patronizing. It's patronizing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and with the blacklisting of alternative health websites such as naturalnews.com, which I'm very fond of, um, it comes with a page rank score or what's called an EAT score, E-A-T. Yeah. What's an EAT score? 
each score is expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness score. It's a it's one of the composite scores that's used in the factorization of the PageRank score, which is the overall rank of a particular website topic or person that Google uses in order to uh, determine priority on its Google search index. Um, and uh, the each score, I think appeared, I, I remember seeing in 2019 um, on the Google search, um, it's like a, some sort of guideline for SEO people, people that do search engine optimization. And the each score is calculated by what, this is going to blow your mind, but it's going to make sense, right? Literally, it's determined by what Wikipedia has to say about you. So when people are like, hey, what does it mean when Wikipedia is saying bad things? I'm like, it means that your each score is about to go down in the next three months. You need to make sure that whatever Wikipedia is saying bad about you, that you get it off right now. Because if you don't, one of the um, search raters is going to go and uh, see that there's a bunch of slander that exists on Wikipedia. And then they're gonna assign your each score to be very low. And then that's gonna take your page rank score. And then um, that's it. You're, you're now off the Google search index, have fun. And when members of Congress wanted to know what the, you know, their page rank score is, and they personally asked the CEO themselves, they can't get it, we'll give it to them. So um, it's so important that Google keeps the EAT score of every topic, person, and page a closely guarded secret. And, um, and it's being based upon what this MSM Wikipedia you know, cabal is essentially um, writing about you. And we all know that Wikipedia has transformed itself into a defamation laundering engine for anything political these days. And so essentially what they're doing is that they're, you know, doing an information coup um, on the American people. So that each score, the, author the expertise, authoritativeness, trustworthy score, um, it also means information coup in, you know, another interpretation of that, in my interpretation. And it's evolving into a social credit score. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because mm -hmm. the thing is, is, um, um, you know, we already essentially have a social credit score at this point. Um, if like when I meet people and they Google me, then there's like a whole bunch of stuff that comes up. Right. And so it, it's hard to be anonymous, uh, in this day and age. And so essentially what we already have is we've got a backdoored social credit system that doesn't have an actual number to it yet that's public, but it's coming. And this is one of the incremental ways that they slowly get towards that thing where, you know, your compliance with the state is reflected in a credit score, which is then used to be able to access services, um, you know, vacations, airplane privileges, um, loan privileges, all these privileges are going to be tied to this on score and uh, we're not there yet, but essentially what we have is we've got the ad hoc decentralized um, version of that that's being run by 
you know, these uh, bad actors. Mm. And you were ahead of the curve in February, 2020, I noticed um, this was right before the pandemic in the US, you pointed to the war against alternative health and anyone with vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does Google de-emphasize alternative health resources? So um, primarily their EAT score goes down, you know, like let's just take natural news. Um, there's going to be a lot of bad things said about it that are going to come through um, Wikipedia. And as a result, their page rig score goes down. And as a result of that, um, you know, it looks to be more discredited. Um, and, and also when your eat score goes down, that means that all the bad stuff about you floats to the top, right? Like, um, you know, they're going to be like, oh, Mike Adams is a, you know, conspiracy theorist and, you know, and they're, they're going to enumerate all of his different, you know, problems that he's had or, or whatever. And, um, or what they believe his problems are. And that stuff bubbles to the top. And so that's one mechanism. Another mechanism is by shadow banning. Um, you know, natural news or Mike Adams has not been on YouTube for some time. Um, they just one day just canceled his account. So he's lost his bullhorn to a lot of his audience. Now he's got to, you know, basically made his make his own, which he has with Brighty on. Um, and, uh, you know, so those are the ways they, they, they allow the slander to rise to the top. They ban you from, you know, having your own voice and they rank all of your content towards the back of the page or just take it off, you know, completely. Hmm. Now, could this also reflect human nature in the sense that through our clicks, we promote that sort of negative slanderous content? Well, sure. I mean, I think that there's a signal there uh, definitely for wanting to get the dirt on someone. Um, I think that that's, you know, sort of human nature. But clearly this anti-globalist sentiment is something that's trending and people want to find um, content that contradicts the mainstream media. Uh, I remember, and this is just an antidote. Um, I have a friend that has a very successful um, tea and supplements company. And he found that by attaching the name Trump to his brand, he was able to pay way less for advertising on Facebook. Now, Facebook's advertising is algorithmically driven. The, uh, they, they factor in that CPA, that cost per acquisition into the price. And so if you pay less uh, for a click, that means that um, it's because people want to click your content. And if your content drives people to click it higher than others, then they're gonna lower the price that you're gonna pay as an incentive to create more engaging content on the platform. And uh, yeah, my friend was like, it went down to something like under 10 cents a click. Uh, and he was making money hand over fist. He's like, what is going on here? Like the algorithm's almost like, 
is almost telling me that I should talk more about Trump and associate it with my brand. And, um, and it's my belief that the reason that that was happening was because of the increase in clicks and that this is the reason why the elites have now turned against the American people is because what they realize is if they have these organic algorithms that go by clicks, then what's going to happen is we're going to have this organic self-amplification process that's going to raise narratives that they are trying to actively fight against. And like, why are we you know, running these computer systems that are actively sabotaging our own agendas? And so, um, you know, this is the reason why that a lot of the suppression is, is happening is because they have to get in there and they have to meddle with, and they have to distort everything because if they don't, then there's gonna be, you know, sort of like a, 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 a leak forms in the dam and they gotta plug it up. And so right now what they're doing is they're sticking their fingers in all the little places that they're falling up. And now they're like, hey, let's bring in the cement and rework this dam because if we don't, the whole thing's gonna collapse and then we're gonna have a huge mess um, on our hands. Hmm. Is, is that also part of what it means to be in tech is like to keep everything together and to keep it all working? Yeah, I mean, thing, things are always constantly falling apart, but I mean, this is a different type of problem, right? Because um, this isn't like a cascade failure where it's like a bug takes out a server and then you, you go to a bunch of different servers, which don't, which aren't cached. They start failing in their responses. And then the system starts going down in really unpredictable ways. This isn't that sort of problem. This is a sociological problem where the users are actually, or your software is actually accomplishing the thing that it's designed to do. It's just that the, um, the hedge funds and the baking cartel that sits behind all of this, ultimately, they're the ones that are having the problem, not the users, right? Like there's no services that are going down. It's, it's, it's going against the agenda of the elites. That's, that's the nature of the problem in this case. Right, so the elites have everything to lose and therefore everything to gain from this shift, from like reflecting objective reality to reflecting and a subjective reality in essence. Um, regarding the pandemic and the blacklisting of sites like Natural Health, what might be Google's motivation to do that and to create these EAT scores? Um, I think it's the new world order, ultimately. I'm just gonna be honest. I think that, uh, you know, they, uh, and here's the thing about the new world order, right? Um, you know, if, if it exists, if there's this network of corporate control, which papers have come out and said that it does. Um, well, this network of global corporate control is automating now faster than it ever has been before. And it's going to just continue to go crazy, right? We're going to have a, like, what, what do we need people for, right? Like there was this huge debate about what happened when laborers were replaced with technicians that just operate the levers. Um, and now we're getting to the place where the whole system will run itself and it will self heal and it will figure out what to do with novel input. So like if the machine breaks down, it's going to know to pull itself out and, um, you know, using vague rules, it's going to know how to interact with a complex environment and be able to fix itself 
and the number of operators that are going to be necessary to run a full-fledged economy is going to go down, not up. And, you know, there's only a few people that, you know, a few percentage points of people that are able to operate computers with high degrees of integration. I'm talking about the, the programmers. Um, and the rest of the society just hates programming for whatever reason. I think it's the most amazing, fun, intellectual experience I could possibly do. Everyone else, it seems like it's pulling teeth. Whatever. Um, the thing is, is that the number of operators that are going to be necessary to run the system is going to go down over time as artificial intelligence wraps up. And so then the question is, what do we do with all the people um, who are essentially going to become worthless eaters? And it's my belief that, you know, that it's not global warming, which is the existential threat to the planet and its health. It's all of the farming. Like when I, when I ride in an airplane and I look down, um, the, every now and then I'll see a city, but it's very few and far between. It's mostly untouched, you know, wilderness, deserts, forests, some mountains, you know, just miles and miles and miles of it. And then farmland. And um, I think that part of the agenda is to obsolete people and then reduce the population down to something like 500 million, you know? Um, and right now, all the stuff that's happening is in preparation for that sort of singularity event, that event where, okay, machines are now smarter than all of us. They're handling all of our, you know, our, our, our affairs, including personal, you know, it's like, Hey, I need to do an errand or I need to go see a friend. Then you'll use an app or you'll just talk into a headset and then a car will come pick you up and bring you over there. And so we're reaching into this, we're returning into this welfare state. Um, and I think that the new world order wants to get us there. I think they want to reduce our population. And I think that we had a bunch of, um, nice freedoms in the 90s and you know early 2000s but ultimately i think the elites propaganda was so powerful that they actually believed their own bs and now that clearly the decentralized narrative that's been forming which is that hey look it's this elite rockefeller rothschild sort of you know, shadowy group operating things behind the scenes, maybe even a group of people behind those people, maybe, you know, Soros, Rothschilds, Rockefellers, maybe they're all just a bunch of front people and that there's actually a more powerful group sitting behind them that are actually calling the shots. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what's actually happening. Um, and I think that what's happened is now that the, um, the cybernetic collectives, like Twitter is a cybernetic collective, Facebook is a cybernetic collective, um, with all the sharing, all this organic virality of content and memes has basically woken us all up and made us realize that um, the world is essentially a fiction. Um, the the history is made up, the economy is made up. Um, there, there, there are some real aspects to it, but 
um, we didn't realize how fake society actually was. And as we, you know, achieve that sort of um, apotheosis of the mind, we realize that um, that's just a giant church. And what reason would you have to believe in this giant church that's actively trying to um, appropriate the total sum of humanity's innovation, take it for themselves, and then reduce you to a um, sort of a, a welfare surf? You know, obviously, we won't be starving like the old serfs, but it's going to be this new digital serfdom that's happening. And when people realize this, they get very upset. They're like, no, we don't want that. Like, you know, um, we want to have a piece of the prosperity too. Like it, prosperity is a result of the total sum uh, human experience of the last million years. You can't just take that. Well, the, the elites are like, no, we're just going to take that for ourselves. And we're going to put you because we own it, right? According to the rules, they, they own everything. So they can just um, take it in the same way that uh, you would take a hairbrush out of the bathroom and move it into uh, your bedroom. Um, they own it. They feel they can own it. They feel they can do all the stuff. They have it somewhere in their vaults that they own it. So they're just going to own it. And the amount of pushback that we have as the people themselves realize that the social contract has been broken um, is causing a huge rift in our society. And this, uh, the solution with the elites is not to come up with better ideas. It's not to come up with a new social contract. It's, hey, this is the way things are going to be right now. And if you don't believe in this, then you're going to be a heretic outside of the church. And we're going to call you disgusting. We're going to call you infected. We're going to call you disease written. And then we're going to start excluding you from all the public places. Um, and that's, that's essentially what I think is happening right now. Yeah, it's possible. Well, and with this abuse of power comes interpersonal abuse. Like we saw with the, the mocking and the suppression of the lab leak theory. You know, people were, were mocked and censored to no end um, in 2020. And then suddenly it's just common knowledge that that's likely what happened is that the virus COVID-19 leaked from a lab. Um, and there's an overwhelming amount of hubris and narcissism around all this. Um, it's power hungry and it's like this shadow self. Like it's interesting we have the term shadow ban. Um, because to do that, I think, is a reflection of the shadow self. It's preying on innocence. It's preying on freedom. Um, and it's interesting, too, you know, thinking about Google's initial intention of being humble is actually the opposite of what they're doing and what many of the, the elites are doing. Right. Um, it, I know we've talked about this already, but let, let's dig deep again. Um, what else is in the human psyche that you think drives this desire to manipulate. Right? Like, it's hard because I don't have the programming of one of these elites. Um, and, but I do have the press, I do have the, um, the vantage point of being very intellectually gifted and um, being incessantly frustrated at the lack of the ability to execute by other people. Like 
really talented people in different, you know, modalities, like let's say music or, you know, and, and other things or their job just don't have the ability to vision and execute on an idea that will work. Right. And I, I've seen people very, very smart, get totally possessed by an idea, you know, and I think that it's a joke. And then I find out later that it's, that's, they actually believe this. And, um, and there's, there's kind of sort of a loneliness and, a, and, and I hate to say, I hate to say, I'm just going to say it a little bit of a disgust because you're like, why can't, like, obviously this is going to work. Like, why doesn't this person take this fire hose of productivity and deliver it in a way that just would, would work so well. And I think that the elites suffer a lot from this same sort of thing where they have this um, there. I mean, I think that the elites are gifted intellectually they also have the privilege of attending these elite universities, schools, and they don't, I mean, these schools aren't going to mess around, right? Like they're going to teach them like how to be a leader, how to get stuff done. And I think that a lot of it is they see the common person and they, they have some sort of disgust response. Like, oh, you know, and it's getting worse too, because now the people are vaccine injured, they're obese, um, they're alcoholics. A lot of them, they've got problems. Their head is filled with weirdo gender ideology. They're gender confused. Um, and I'm seeing in myself more and more of a disgust response with the common person. And I think that this is a dangerous feedback mechanism that is happening. And it's making the elites even more certain in their own ability to lead them, uh, lead us, that we are ungovernable, that we are animals, that we need to be led by them. And that if we're not, then we'll have certain ruin. And, you know, which is, really why it's really important to fight back against this obesity epidemic because i mean i was watching a peter frampton video the other day from like when he was young and you look out into the crowd and they're all hot like they're all like fit you know and then you go and i, I saw this recent sort of video of, of of a recent performance you look out on the crowd and they're all fat or like, like everyone's overweight. And I think that's really dangerous because the fact that we're all overweight is going to create a, a greater chasm between the elites and between the profane common masses. Like we're getting to a state where, you know, um, being extremely unhealthy is the equivalent of someone being covered in dirt, right? Like the elites like, Oh, I don't want to touch that. Right. I'll be contaminated. 
And I think that that's where we're heading towards right now is this dehumanization of the masses uh, in preparation for the, um, the psychology of these elites to be able to justify in their minds. Because remember, it's humans at the top, a very corrupt group of humans. And they have to make, make it make sense for them of why they're doing. And they can't you know, just take a bunch of people that are enlightened and then put them into serfdom. In order for this process to work, I suspect that it's the masses themselves which have to be degraded to the point where you're doing it for their own good. And that's where, where we're at the stage right now. You know, we're, we're incredibly unhealthy. Um, you know, it's like try dating a woman in San Francisco. It's like a landmine. Um, and their head, it's like, people ask me, like, who do you like to date? I'm like, well, I'd like to date like um, Eastern European women, you know, especially from the ones from these like hard countries. And they're like, why? I'm like, because their head's not filled with garbage, right? Like there's something about hard times that brings out like the best in people. And if you have this decadent culture, like we have in the United States with like the oppression Olympics, you just get... The, you just get this like uncleanliness that contaminates the entire mind and body and you can see it, you can feel it. And um, as this continues, I think it's going to get easier and easier for the elites to justify in their head to subjugate it because they think that it's for our own good. To quote Dr. King, let no man pull you low enough to hate him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think we need to be careful not to dehumanize ourselves. I, I say that for everyone. Um, but you know, when I hear you admit the feeling of disgust, I think that that takes strength um, to admit that. Um, and at the same time, it takes strength to push back and say, Perhaps you might set certain boundaries and have certain types of people that you really want to spend time with that makes sense, but also make sure that the elites don't get what they want, which is more division and polarization and dehumanization of the other and dehumanization of the self. We have to do it. We have to reverse it. I mean, this it's like one of the best things ever is um, no one's drinking soda anymore. Right? Like... Um, soda, which is, you know, uh, terrible for you. Um, people are realizing that sugar is at the root of all of these health problems. It's not fat. It's not like butter. Butter's not the problem. It's like drinking, you know, four cans of Coca-Cola a day, um, and eating all this bread, you know, this whole keto thing. Um, it really brings me hope that we can, we can become, healthier individuals as a society, because if we can do that, then we can reverse a lot of what's going on. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm just in a bubble, you know, I, all my friends are doing keto and they're all, we're all exchanging tips on it. So, but I, I mean, I may just be in a bubble. Maybe that doesn't translate to 
the common person. I don't. I know. mean, maybe I am too, because I know someone who's doing keto who's probably going to listen to this. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but I digress. I um, Let's talk about a humbling part of your journey, which I think is parallel to a lot of this. You suffered from a vaccine injury yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were a huge advocate for vaccines back in 2014. Um, and you got the HPV vaccine, all the boosters, you were all for it. And yeah, one, three shots yeah, total. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Three. Okay. And it left you allergic to a lot of foods. Um, what was your journey in realizing the connection between your adverse reaction and the HPV vaccine? Yeah. So my reaction to the, so the, the problem that I have is I'm now allergic to most foods, corn, bread, um, beer, wine, I'm going to have it in a bad time. Um, and, um, it happened right after I got the HPV vaccine, the boosters. Um, and it took me a while to sort of uh, like, it was sort of like a whodunit, like a mystery. Like why, why is my body reacting this way? Cause it was clearly an inflammation response. Um, and as this whole censorship sort of unfurled with Google, I realized that, wow, they're trying to censor things that are true. They're not trying to censor them because they're untrue. They're trying to censor things because they are. And what I saw were these, um, all these people being censored with vaccine injured children. I think it was like Vaxxed, the movie came out. If you've seen it, it's pretty good. And there was this nurse that was, she had triplets and she got them all vaccinated. And then one by one by one, they all just took a turn towards autism where they are to this day. And she was, you know, being censored. And that's when I started to go, huh? Well, if they're censored, then that means that there's a signal that there's a cover up in place. So it's like once you see the cover up, then it's like, okay, well, there's some smoke here. So I'm going to dig in and see if there's fire. And you know, I'm a smart guy. And I was like, well, I can, I can figure out exactly what's going on with the, uh, if if there is vaccine injury, I can figure out what the process is. And so I started reading all these different papers and listening to a bunch of different scientists, you know, because I I worked at YouTube. So it was like the one social media network we could be on like all the time. So at work, I just started, you know, searching, researching myself. And um, what I found was that, you know, these vaccines, I mean, we, we know that they modulate the immune system, but I never really knew how they modulated the immune system. And once I found out the mechanism to which that is done, which is that they, like, I thought that they just give you a dead virus and then your body's like, oh, look at this dead virus. And then it makes antibodies for it. No, if you do that, your body will not make the proper antibodies your immune system has to be jolted with either an infection or um, an adjuvant. And it's not actually the dead virus that's giving us the problems, it's the adjuvant. Um, And the adjuvant is causing, it it basically tells your your body, hey, look, you need to make an, an antibody for this pathogen that I've now found. 
um, if the if the system if the thing doesn't create any sort of um, inflammation response, then your body may just actually not create the 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 antibodies for it. it may just pass through your system. So, you know, when they give you the dead virus, they got to give you an adjuvant, which is usually aluminum hydroxide. Um, and then that aluminum hydroxide will go and it will actually bind to a bunch of different things. Um, and what they hope is that it's going to bind to the, um, the, the dead virus, but it could also bind to cat dander that's in your blood. Um, it could also bind to gluten that happens to be in your blood or one of the other things that your body finds irritating, but doesn't actually mount a, um, a visible immune response to now all of a sudden it can mount it sees that that you know formally agitating thing as something that is deeply deeply harmful and so now it's like okay we got to bring out the war machines and now every single time you go by a cat maybe your eyes get all puffy you know you get hay fever or you get asthma that's your body determining that something is now um, so dangerous that it needs to amount a proper immune response to it. This is the reason why I believe that I've got all these food allergies. I believe that I had eaten some bread, you know, and then got the, uh, booster shot or the, or the HPV vaccine. And as a result, um, all of a sudden my body atta attacks a bunch of things that didn't formally attack, which basically cuts out 95% of all the food that I can eat sucks. Um, and once you start going down that rabbit hole, then you start going into other topics of vaccine harm. You start finding out how they harm you in other ways. Like Judy Mikovits revealed that the vaccines were being contaminated with um, animal retroviruses. Um, the, there was a mouse one called XMRV and that fire, that retrovirus exists in the mouse endogenously as a normal routine. They, they get infected with this common, but it's not, it's not common in humans. But what you do is if you grow the vaccine on a substrate, which will be like organs, then what happens is that those organs then get ground up into a soup, a puree, and then inject it into you. And it's that with an adjuvant to stimulate the immune system. Um, and so when those cells get injected into you, well, some of those retroviruses that existed in that mouse now exist in you, and now they're modifying the DNA um, and they're causing a whole bunch of different uh, diseases, right? Like they're finding that Epstein-Barr, CME, uh, herpes virus are being implicated in all these different diseases. You know, what's really interesting is, for example, they're finding that um, um, a, a cyclovar, which is the um, herpes uh, immunosuppressant uh, stuff, can be given to schizophrenics and a subset of the schizophrenics will radically improve their prognosis. And now scientists are like, well, geez, are these retroviruses, which didn't exist in the human population before, are these the primary drivers of a lot of these diseases that are out there? And, you know, once you start going down this vaccine rabbit hole, you're, it's like, wow, there's a lot there. 
And the idea that it's even on the market as an optional drug that you can take or actually it's not a drug, it's a biologic as, as the thing that you, that you're actually legally allowed to take is pretty mind blowing. But the fact that they're making it mandatory is evil beyond comprehension. Once you find out all of these things that are happening to people, like it's like 50% of the people now have an autoimmune problem, right? Allergies, an autoimmune problem. You know, if you're intolerant to foods or, you know, gluten allergy, that's, that's an autoimmune problem. A full 50% of the people have autoimmune problems and it shouldn't be this way. It wasn't this way uh, before, um, but it is now. And it happens everywhere in the world where you introduce vaccines. And that's the startling truth is that, you know, Vietnam, they're having this problem where they don't want to give the people the vaccines um, and they don't really have the autism there. And now all of a sudden they're giving them these vaccines and all of a sudden all these autoimmune problems start coming in, like, like the autism, they're skyrocketing. And so um, we need to be, you know, I think that this is the civil rights issue of our era, because if we can't stop the forced injection of an unknown patented secret substance, then, um, you know, we're at the total mercy that we basically have no sovereignty. It's like our definition of sovereignty hinges on whether we can preserve our ability to say no to the secret sauce that they want to inject into us. That's going to have God knows what, and it's going to do God knows what to our immune system to achieve whatever ends that they make up to, to try to convince us to take these vaccines. Mm. And regarding the mandates, even if it's one person out of the whole country, one person who suffer, suffers an injury, I think that's cause to really doubt whether this should be mandated. Because even if there's a slight risk, even if the vaccines are generally safe, just even if that's the argument, if that's true, um, it, I just don't think it's just, it, I think it is the civil rights issue of our time. And it's actually being taken up by people across the political spectrum, which is something that's not covered enough. Um, and that, that brings me hope. I think more people are waking up, um, people who have been vaccinated, people who have not, or people who have been partially vaccinated for COVID-19. A lot of people are waking up to this and, not only is it a civil rights issue, I think it's also a crisis of storytelling. Like why is a mom or actually even a child, like I heard of a 13 year old child who was injured, who's trying, who is telling her story bravely mm -hmm. and she's receiving death threats. Like what is, I mean, I asked this question rhetorically because I think we've talked about it. Like what's going on with big tech and with big pharma that brings us to this place of people wishing death upon an ill child or a suffering elderly. You know, it, it's, it's come to a place of partial truths and flat out lies. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think something like this could happen organically. Um, I see this as a, as a result of a centralized top-down push by a group of elites uh, onto the world. Um, and that, Part of that propaganda campaign involves turning the population against a subset of the other population. 
And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing this centralized push. Like everyone decided altogether on the reality of this thing, instead of having this sort of organic, like, oh, well, let's try to find the, the truth of the matter. It was like, no, it's, it's coming from this authority. And if you don't agree with this, then you're a right-wing extremist or you're a bad person or you're an anti-vaxxer. Um, and that's, th those are all signals that this is a centralized top-down agenda that's being pushed. It's not something that's just, that just organically happened. Mm. It's possible. And it seems like the elites will do whatever they can to make the world clean in their view at any cost. And we see this with the World Economic Forum. They warned of a COVID-like cyber pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you said flat out um, one of our text messages that they are trying to immunize the internet. Yeah. What, what's a cyber pandemic and what, what might that look like? So a cyber pandemic is a viral, like a virus or a worm that goes through the computer systems, infects them, and then brings them down so that the things that, that run on the computers um, no longer function, right? Like your bank, uh, ATM, you know, trying to get on a BART, uh, trying to fill up gas, uh, trying to use the internet, trying to make a phone call, all those things are mediated by technology and that what they're warning about is that all those are vulnerable. Uh, to which I say, duh, yeah, because they're backdoored by organizations like Intel. Like, I don't know if you know this, but Intel has a, had a secret uh, operating system on their CPUs um, and these backdoors were being, were, were just, being built it like you can't even like um like the computer the computer could be off and connected to a network cable and the network cable could um you know give your computer a command to wake up and there's nothing you can do to stop it um uh you know it's not like norton antivirus is going to stop this thing uh, because it's it's literally a back door built into the cpu itself and this has been a huge, huge security nightmare. And the media doesn't want to pick it up. They don't want to talk about this backdoor in all of our CPUs. Uh, and who knows what other backdoors exist? Like, I bet that's just the tip of the iceberg. I bet that the, that the, the exploits that we can't see are littered all over the place. And when Klaus Schwab came out and talked about, you know, this cyber pandemic, I, I know exactly what he's talking about. And that is, they're talking about the exploitation of these backdoors in order to bring down all of the different computer systems that we have. Um, and they may think that it's necessary because these old computers can, you know, do a whole lot. Like, you know, computers aren't getting faster like they used to in the 90s. Like in the 90s, it was like every year they would double in speed in their clock rate. Now we can't increase the clock rate, we have to increase the number of transistors, which means that it's a lot more complicated to make things faster. Um, and these old computers are still able to run all these ancient operating systems. And so one of the things I suspect is that they're going to use the cyber pandemic to take out everyone's personal computers. But don't worry, they'll give us new computers to replace that. Um, they'll just have all their, you know, backdoored spyware, um, identity locking information so that 
you know, if they need to shut you off for whatever, they can just shut you off. Um, and uh, part of that story that I believe is that they're going to try to take down the infrastructure of the decentralized internet itself. Like one of the biggest gifts about the internet is it's actually completely decentralized. Like people are talking about like blockchain, the DNS system that we have, this domain name server that we can use to connect to computers uh, as part of the internet. It's a very complicated decentralized system that works very, very well. Um, and I think that the cyber pandemic could be um, the excuse that they could use to take out the DNS, the, the domain name system resolution, so that if you can't go to google.com anymore without that name resolving through a centralized name resolver that they'll own. Because right now they don't really own it. It's like whoever can resolve the name can and has the authority to do so um, through a decentralized system can you know, resolve that name. Hmm. So uh, in effect, they'd give us an identification that would allow us privileges to the internet? Well, I think that that's coming. Um, I think that, and you see it right now, like every release that Mac has and when, and Microsoft does, um, their system gets more locked down with something called signing, like executable signing. Uh, it's something that I had to do as a software engineer, essentially when you build software during the compilation process, as one of the final steps, you have to sign the, the, the executable with a um, signature that you can't forge. It's actually very similar to like a blockchain transaction with the crypto signing uh, when you do a transaction. Same thing happens with the binary that says, hey, look, this binary was signed by, you know, let's say Sienna May. And uh, because Sienna May is a person that the centralized authorities have licensed her to be able to have granted her a license to be able to sign her binaries, we then are able to run this trusted code. It's like, it's literally called trusted code. And what I see is that this is eventually going to morph into a system where this key follows you wherever you go. Um, it's part of your identification and that this key is going to be how you access a computer. And right now a computer is like you buy a computer, you put in a password, you put in that password, you can get back into the computer where this is going to be this new system, which I believe is going to come down is you're going to have an identification that's going to be granted to you by a centralized authority. And when you want to operate a computer, you validate that, that key with the central authority that grants you then access to use that computer. And, you know, maybe for a couple of weeks before you have to re-authenticate, kind of like signing into to Facebook, but you're going to have to sign into your computer. And back to you have to sign in with every computer that you use. Um, and it'll be transparent. You won't even notice it. It'll be convenient. But under the hood, the signing will, will take place. And the thing is, is that as soon as they don't want you to have access, like let's say, you know, you commit a crime, they're like, well, we're going to revoke your ability to use computers. Now, all of a sudden, your access to computers goes off. Okay, well, now everything that's that you've signed may also go down. So, you know, as part of this, it's like, oh, well, I'm a software engineer. Oh, well, don't get in trouble or we'll revoke your licenses. And then all your software on all your clients' machines will suddenly go down. 
And this is ultimately how they're going to be able to get rid of a lot of these viruses. In fact, they're getting rid of all these viruses right now because, you know, no one's going to sign a virus, you know, as a legit executable because then it comes back to them. You know, they want to run this untrusted code. Well, now with these signing certificates, you, you may notice that we don't have viruses like we did in the 80s and the 90s and 2000s. Like, it's just not a problem anymore. Like, you know, it's not like a worm goes and infects everyone's computers. This is eventually going to be used as a way to lock down the entire internet system. But before they can do that, they're going to need the crisis that is able to justify this extreme lockdown measure. And I think that Klaus Schwab doing his little speech about how the cyber pandemic is going to come is him sort of giving this predictive programming necessary to, to get this thing, to get the people prepared for this shutdown of the internet that's going to happen. This, this whatever worm that is going to be released probably by them. It's probably going to be like another lab leak. It's going to come out and it's going to wreak havoc. And then to fix this for generations to come, they're going to propose this radical, you know, call it a digital computer passport that you'll need to have in order to operate the computer. And so mm -hmm. I think that this is what he's talking about. He's, he's laying the groundwork for this, um, for this future crisis which will be used to cement more authoritarian control over every aspect of our lives. Maybe so. Um, how, might, how might this approach to immunize the internet relate to the trends of dehumanization and alleged uncleanliness? Well, I think that there's this path that we have to merge humans with, a, with artificial intelligence. You know, it's like, what's better than a spy in your pocket, a spy directly into your brain. Um, and so I think that um, they're, they're pushing us towards this, this sort of merging of artificial intelligence um, into our lives. And um, I think that what's going to happen is that if you can't use computers, then it's going to be like, you're going to be like a second-class citizen. In fact, you actually already are a sec second-class citizen if you don't know how to use computers that well, right? You're burdened on everyone. Um, you're 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 asking for help all the time. You're always getting frustrated because the computer doesn't make any sense. How do I copy and paste? That's all foreign to me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, um, which is totally opposite from my day when I was a teenager, if you're a nerd, that was something that was um, deplorable. But I think that in the future, if you don't know how to use computers, you're going to be a, a deplorable and uh, you're going to be unclean. Um, and exactly how that uncleanliness uh, manifests uh, is yet to be seen. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because through the World Economic Forum, leaders from Facebook have spoken to wanting to give everyone voice. That's the term they use. Everyone, um, including the smallest villages in Africa where people don't have computers or the internet or even smartphones. Um, so what do you think that that motivation holds any merit? Like the mo no. the mode, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, it's like, 
them. It's like the global cartel trying to spread democracy. They don't actually want to spread democracy. They just want to do a takeover. They want to do a corporate takeover of whatever asset is in that country. And so they're using uh, whatever means possible in order to give the veneer of justification for them to be able to do their thing. So, um, yeah, I don't think that Facebook has Ethiopia's, you know, you know, the people in mind, they just want to uh, extract value from that geographical region as best as they can. And um, that's, that's what it is here. Like, oh, we need to get everyone connected to computers. Then they want every, they want to spy on everyone. They don't have any, you know, um, like they bring computers in that culture. They're going to destroy that culture, that wonderful, beautiful, ancient culture that exists wherever it is is going to be completely wiped away by the tsunami that represents this iPhone when it hits the culture. I mean, it will be a different culture. Maybe in some ways it will be, you know, more innovative, but whatever that culture was, the computers are going to wipe it out. Right. And you can, you can already see this. Like I talked to people in the middle East, like, Oh, how's it going in the middle East? Oh, it's undergoing radical transformation. Oh, what do you mean? Well, before men and women weren't able to hang out because of the Quran, and now that we have all these, um, you know, instant messaging things, um, well, that's sort of a sidestep into the whole, you know, Quran. Like, they're they're still following the the Quran because they're not meeting in person. But the Quran never envisioned that we would be able to, um, you know, do social media chatting back to each other, you know, remotely. This telepresence that we have, you know allows men and women to now talk all the time. And that's changing their society. Now, as a libertarian, I think it's a great thing for men and women to be able to, you know, exercise their own sort of um, sovereignty. But I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, we need to like, you know, preserve the culture under all sort of ways. Now, I would, I would say, you know, it's, it's a great culture, but it needs to be like reformed and maybe the technology will be a good thing for them. But don't listen to the words of these liars that go on and say that they actually have these, these people's best intentions in, in mind. They don't. They're just using a, um, a circle of useful idiots to push that so that they can get the justification to get in there. That once they're going to get in, they're going to infect them. With their technology and they're going to use it to ultimately to bring them under control of their centralized authority and that's it that's all they want everything that they do is for expanding the reach of the centralized authority meanwhile google has released a vector search uh, it's a product that can you know it's a product that can speed up search applications and turn things like a human face into a vector um Tell us more about what what is a vector search, you know, in more detail, um, and what what are some good things about it, and what are some bad things about it? Yeah, so um, the vectorization of uh, content. So, um, you know, we live in the three dimensional world, um, but the math that works on three dimensions turns out it can work on higher dimensional spaces you know, n-dimensional. So you have these big giant matrices, which you can use to do calculations on. And so um, what they found out is that if you can turn things into this 
you know, n-dimensional vector. And the dimensions themselves are not like spatial dimensions. It's more like attributes, you know, like for example, um, whether you are a, um, a stay-at-home mom could be one component in the vector. And so what they've been able to uh, do, one of the innovations that Google's been able to do is that they are able to take all these things and turn them into an n-dimensional vector and then do um, vector calculations for similarity. And the way that calculations for similarity work is um, it's something called the dot product. It's a um, an elementary operation in linear algebra. Basically, it tells you whether two vectors are similar, like two vectors like this, like we can eye it. We could say, oh yeah, they look similar, but how do you represent that in a numerical way? Well, it turns out that if you do this, um, this dot product, um, then you will get this number and this number will tell you um, how close the vectors are to each other. So for example, if two normalized vectors have a dot product of one, that means that they're the same vector. And if there's zero, that means that they're like off at a right degree angle, which means that they've got nothing in common with each other at all, right? So a perpendicular vector would be like, um, uh, I, I don't know, like, um, Trying to find a, an example of a perpendicular vector in a semantic space. So, um, all right, here's one. Um, so whether you're a boy or girl and whether it rained yesterday are two completely orthogonal vectors in a semantic space. And so uh, this dot product is what they use in order to find similarity between two different n-dimensional vectors. And so the thing is, so the, 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 the theory goes, if you can take everything and you can turn it into a vector, then you can do this dot product on it and you can find out whether it's similar. And then now, now you can search through, you know, trillions of bits of information and then you can find the things that are most relevant to the current vector that you have. That's what the Google vector search appliance thing is. And they're releasing now for whatever reason, they're releasing that now to the general public so that you can use it and install it in your own workplace. They probably have some sort of spying thing in the fine details, but you know, cause like nothing's ever for free, right? But that's what that whole vectorization of search is that Google is talking about. And could Google Drive start locking our files? They already are. Um, I mean, you, what you saw with the um, Arizona recall, not the recall, it was the Arizona recount, um, entire spreadsheets were being locked down in people's drive accounts as sensitive material, same as you know pornography or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's already here. It's already happening. The question is, are they going to turn it from one up to 11? And um, that's an interesting question. I think that they will, but I think that it will go a lot more slowly if they have a bunch of bad publicity and there's a whole bunch of alternatives that people will go to. So let's hope that, that, that something happens because this whole Google Docs is amazing and I love using it. It's made my life a lot simpler, but um, we need to find an alternative. And if I could find an alternative um, that wasn't Microsoft, um, I would be down to use it. Yeah, me too.
And with the First Amendment at stake, do you think that the government should try to break up Google? This is a hard one. Um, I would if Google owned a whole bunch of the fiber optic lines. Uh, but what's interesting is um, Google doesn't actually own critical infrastructure, right? Like, what is critical infrastructure? Like, uh, it's infrastructure that can't be replaced, right? Like, um, like for example, if I own the oil fields in some country, then um, I, I can't just go and dig a well 100 miles away and expect to have it be equivalent, right? And uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, you know, Oracle owns a whole bunch of data servers that sit in a whole bunch of different corporations. Um, as soon as, and that's critical infrastructure, right? Like if they, if, they, if they turn those servers off remotely, then people are screwed. They can't, they lost all their data. They don't get it back, right? And we think that Google actually has critical infrastructure, but it turns out that they kind of don't. They do have a monopoly on the ad space and they did have a monopoly on search, but um, they're getting in the way of people's search for information. And if they don't want to use it, they can just go to one of the other ones like DuckDuckGo, which is the one that I recommend most of the time. Um, and because of that, they have this MySpace problem where one day MySpace just sort of, well, not one day, it was like three months, they got really bad and became unusable and then collapsed. And Google could have the same thing happen to them, right? Like, Verizon's not going to go away. Like Verizon could treat you like crap. They've got this amazing LTE network that's not going to go anywhere. And so you replace that entire network, then they've got a lock on the whole industry. And Google doesn't have that lock. Everything that we use with them is completely voluntarily. Uh, Google, uh, Gmail, uh, Google search, uh, YouTube. Okay, it's all voluntary. As soon as we decide to use something else, we're using something else. And, um, and so should Google be broken up? I think their ad system needs to be hacked off. Um, I think that we need to have some sort of RICO investigation because the, the bombshell that just came out with Google is that they were doubling the prices and then pretending that there was someone bidding up those prices, but it turns out it was just them and that they were just pocketing all the money. It's like that stuff needs, there needs to be like federal agents. There needs to be like a criminal investigation done. And then big people need to go down. And then if you could just, if you could just fix Google's ad monopoly problem, then all the other stuff that they like built up to make people think that they're a broad technology company. And when in fact, they're actually just an ad technology, all that other stuff would just fall away because they're like, okay, Jigs up. Everyone knows that we're just an ad monopoly. Now that they're going after our ad monopoly, we don't need to fund all the stuff like my old project, like Google Earth. Like they, they, they still fund that. They still have a bunch of engineers. Doesn't do them very much. 
And this is something that these companies do is that once they become a monopoly, they spend, you know, a whole bunch of time setting up these sort of fake projects that don't actually generate any revenue so that they can say that they're actually not a monopoly. They're actually a broad technology company that also happens to have a, you know, dominant position in search, um, which is a lie. They are a monopoly in search. Everything else is just a way to make it look like they're not a monopoly, which they are. And so if, you know, and so I, I guess the, the final answer is yes, I do believe they're a monopoly. I do believe that the ad system needs to be, uh, you know, either regulated or chopped off or some sort of RICO investigation needs to happen. And they need to go, and that, if that gets lopped off of Google, all the other problems that we have with censorship, all the other problems that we have with totalitarianism control just fixes itself because they no longer, the, the beast starts to starve because they don't have the revenue that they have. Like that's the number. And look at what's happening right now with the antitrust that's going on with Google. It's all focused on their ad tech business. And the reason why they're not like, they're not, they're not investigating, you know, the YouTube thing, you know, or the, the political, you know, rigging and search, they're just going after the, the ad and people may even just write it off, but no, it's a big deal because it's the, um, it's the Achilles heel, of the entire organization. And they know it. You take out that whole ad revenue system that they have and all of Google collapses. Now, what I've heard is that, you know, the collapse is not what is on the, the, the future. The agenda is actually to uh, buy out Google through their stock by a corporate sort of um, seizure by the state, by the federal government. So they're gonna basically pay out everyone their full value of their stock. And then they're going to break up Google, which means that every single stockholder is going to get a full payout and they're going to make like bandits. And so if you want to know why Google is doing all their really evil things, well, what I've heard uh, is that it's their actual stockholders themselves that are driving all the evilness to force the government to deal with them as an existential threat. And the solution to that existential threat will be a, uh, a buyout of the stock and then a breakup of the company. Ooh, interesting. Mm -hmm. hmm. And you've mentioned DuckDuckGo. Um, were, was DuckDuckGo going to be bought out? I thought, I thought that was kind of floating around. And Yeah, I've heard news. that before. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Okay. Uh, well, what solutions are you proposing? Like, I know you have your Google Leaks book out, um, and you mentioned a new project. How's no, that let's not talk, let's, let's, oh, let's, so, let's okay, not say there, the name, but, but I, no. yes, <laughs> yeah, let's not say the name of the project. But okay. uh, I've been working on a project that fixes the censorship problem, and it's a new type of social media system called an aggregator. And this aggregator. It fixes the whole thing and it fixes the problem with video content. But I also see that this aggregator could be used to fix the whole problem with uh, tweet like content. Because the thing is, is that all these people exist, uh, they're fractured, 
right? They're fractured on YouTube. Some of them are BitChute, others on Rumble, some of them are Brighteon, Odyssey, um, you know, Spreaker, Clout Hub, Gab TV. There's a lot of platforms out there. And to get like what everyone's talking about, you pretty much have to play this like social media shuffle where you're checking that person and that person, blah, blah, blah. And what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to recreate that old YouTube um, recommendation algorithm, which now is fractured. And all these different video hosts only allow you to search for content within their system. Well, I realized that, you know, on the back end of all this is an RSS feed that is, you know, it, all these video places are actually open hosts. Like you can query, even YouTube allows you to query uh, a list of videos of each content producer, um, what they've done for the last, you know, month. I, I don't know how far back the history goes, but let's just say it's a month. And so what I realized is that, oh my gosh, we can just collect, I can just collect all these videos um, using um, algorithms and find out all the new videos that have been going on in the last day uh, that have been released pull them under one single website and then um, make it really pretty. And so what I've come up with is basically a glorified RSS reader that aggregates um, all of the people that have been banned and not banned, you know, that are basically in the conservative space. Um, and it brings that under one website. And why this is really great and censorship proof is that, look, since I'm pulling from all these different platforms, if someone um, goes and they uh, ban someone from, let's say YouTube, well, then I can pull their content from Rumble. Okay, they got banned from Rumble. Okay, I can pull it from BitChute, right? Like you have to get banned from six different video hosts before you're not gonna show up with my product. And that's a game changer. I think it's gonna change the whole ecosystem and it's gonna kick drive um, an anti-censorship movement. I think, and the reason why I'm saying this is because I think that I'm going to get copied. Um, I, I'm going to try to get, you know, you know, I'm going to try to enrich myself financially because of this product, but that's not actually the main goal. It's actually secondary. If I could choose between financial enrichment and solving the censorship problem for content creators like you, I'd rather solve the thing for content creators like you. As a secondary, I hope that I'm also going to be financially secure from this, but we'll see what happens. But I think that what is absolutely certain is that I'm going to be copied because it's so fantastically successful in this technique that I'm using that I can't, it's going to be hard for me to see. Either I'm going to get copied or big tech's going to expose themselves and sh again, and shut down all the RSS feeds. And what's really interesting to see is you know, will Rumble shut down their RSS feeds? Will BitChute, you know, because right now they appear to be open and, you know, respectful of free censorship. But what happens really if someone else is able to create a recommendation engine that sits above all these other places and pulls from their content? Is Rumble actually going to stay open? Is YouTube actually going to stay open? And that question is going to be answered when I launch this thing. And and if they close down, you know, like let's say YouTube's like, we're shutting down our RSS feeds. Well, then that can be used as part of the narrative 
um, campaign that I'm driving to let people know that these people are at war with you and they're going to shut you down. And the best way for me to convince those people that they're going to be shut down is to actually have the company shut them down. Hey, look, Google shut off your RSS feeds. You should also simulcast to Rumble where, they're, where they don't do that or simulcast on BitChute or Brighton or Gab TV. And people don't have to switch to Gab TV as their primary thing. They could still primarily release on YouTube, right? But they could also release it to Gab TV. In that case, I pick it up. And now you're leveraging the power of the market in order to route around the whole censorship problem. So I think it's going to be fantastically successful. Um, and we're going to launch soon. I can't give you a date right now, but I'm in the production of the video for the crowdfunding campaign. We'll have to see how that works. Okay, cool. Um, this brings to mind a saying from Silicon Valley that if the product is fee is sorry, if the product is free, then you are the product. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to attracting the user's attention, which essentially is the currency, um, certain products can infringe upon the user's privacy. How would you do things differently? Uh, instead of, well, I don't like all this. Um, uh, how would I do things differently on a privacy perspective? Like, I think that uh, being upfront with what you're collecting. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think that privacy is that big of a deal. Um, there's definitely a trend towards not having privacy except where we want it. Like intimate moments are, are private, obviously. You don't want to broadcast that. But um, I think that, I'm just reading the tea leaves here. I think that the privacy is on its way out. I think that um, we're becoming more transparent. Um, you know, we definitely don't want to be snooping in on your private conversations with your friends. But I think that privacy as a trend was something that was in the pre-technology state. And now that this technology is is happening, um, there's a force of nature that's in play that's going to continually erode our privacy at every aspect, right? Like, look, I live in San Francisco in the Mission District. I walk outside. I am getting recorded by cameras, by the convenience store, by the grocery store, by the traffic. Some of the traffic lights may even have, um, you know, cameras in them. Then, in fact, they probably do. And no one's asking my permission to record me in the public square. And so I think that what needs to happen is that we need to have some sort of digitization of the public square where if you step into it, you have this expectation of not having a lot of privacy unless you assert that privacy yourself. So for example, if I'm using Google, then there is an expectation that they're going to record and log every single thing that I type into there. Even if I don't hit return, if I'm just typing and then deleting it, they're probably recording those keystrokes as well. Um, And it's, 
my belief that that's going to be an irreversible trend and that the only way that you're going to have privacy is by, ex instead of having privacy by default, we're going to have to explicitly assert that this is a private protected moment that I don't want to have for regular consumption. And I think that that's where it's going to go out. So, I mean, at least in terms of this product that I'm going to release, I, I don't really have, it's not even like a, pro, like the way that I deal with the whole privacy thing is I don't even collect, um, you can't even register for the product. It's just free to, to use. Um, and that sidesteps the whole thing. Um, and so I, I think that privacy, it's such a complicated thing because tech, technologically speaking, it's getting harder and harder to have anything private. Um, like I can tweet and then that tweet can be used against me 10 years later. Um, you know, and, and so in order to get back privacy, we're going to have to reinvent um, a concept of digital ephemeralness. And Snapchat has actually been the greatest pioneer in this, right? Like, you do a Snapchat and then it, it auto-destructs and it's by de definition ephemeral um, content. And I know lots of people that have been fired you know, online because of a tweet. I don't know anyone that's been fired because of a snap that they did. So um, I think that Snapchat may be sort of the best example of privacy in the digital age. Okay. And through all this, I think people are trying to discern between big tech and alt tech, some might call it. Um, so you mentioned Snapchat, DuckDuckGo. Um, we know Brave is another good one. Um, what other platforms and search engines would you recommend and why? I like the uh, search.brave.com. Um, I'm, I'm a little, little hesitant right now on DuckDuckGo. There's some worrying signals that they may go the way of Google. Um, what other what other products do I, I, I Proton Mail is also not that good anymore. Um, don't like Firefox. It's it's a landmine right now, right? Like all these recommendations that I had two years ago have changed now. Um, I honestly think people should learn how to code and then run their own mail server. Like that's like, that's like, I don't even trust VPNs. I don't trust signal. I don't trust telegram. I don't trust proton mail. Uh, my assumption right now is that they're all spying on you. You just get to choose uh, different factions of the cartel uh, who they get to, you know, get access to your, your information first. That's, that's, that's all. So I don't really, I don't really have any big recommendations other than using brave. Um, ProtonMail is better than Gmail. Um, use a VPN if you want. I really, really like the Tor browser on Brave, but all the websites that you'd want to use it for, like social media or searches, a lot of them just make it difficult to use now. They're throwing up barriers. So as far as recommendations, DuckDuckGo, ProtonMail, Brave browser, um, Use the VPN if you want, use Tor if you can, and know that um, 
if you try to hide yourself too much, then that's also a signal for them to, to dig in. Okay. So let's try not to end on a black pill as much as I, I hear you on all that. Um, being such a prominent whistleblower, what motivates you to speak out and what advice might you give to someone who's on the fence about blowing the whistle? Look, you got to be right with your maker. Um, we all end up dead at some point in our future. And you're going to be defined not how you die, but how you lived your life. And do you really want to prove yourself to be a coward in the time of uh, when, when it mattered? Like we are in a very important part of history and each of us has a role to play in this history. And um, if, you know, if you know what the right thing is and you don't do it, then, you know, you're proving yourself to be on that side. And for me, I was like, I want to be, I want to be a hero. I don't like what's going on. And I'm going to choose to, um, to, to step into this, into this disclosure and tell people what's really going on and give humanity one last fighting chance to stop this information coup that's happening. And I really urge other people that are in positions of knowledge to contact Project Veritas, um, tips at projectveritas.com, let them know what they have. They've got, an, uh, they've got a professional archivist that will go through everything that you give them, document it, and they'll be able to know, they'll give it the due diligence to know whether they want to uh, move on it or not. And that's just so incredibly important. And let me tell you, like coming out on the other side of this, I feel like I'm aligned with the maker. I feel that I'm aligned with humanity. I feel that I was on the right side of history. Like it's so different than where I used to be, which was upset, conflicted, spiritually broken and feeling like a coward. And now it's just a complete 180 degree. I feel like a, I feel like a, like a giant, like, I can't be hurt. I can't be touched. Even if you kill me, I know that I've lived the good life. And if someone's out there that can make a difference, my recommendation is that you do it. Uh, but don't do it impulsively. Do it deliberately uh, because, you know, we don't just need you to blow the whistle. We also need you to have a little bit of a flair for the theatrical so that it really reaches out to the mass population. So if that's you, do the right thing. Uh, contact Project Veritas or one of the other media organizations. It doesn't have to be Project Veritas. It could be any one of the other ones. And let America know what's really going on. And where can people find you online? People can find me online at ZachVorhees.com. You can check that out for all of the different leaks. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter.com slash Perpetualmaniac. Um, and, um, and you can also find me on Gab or Getter at the, at Perpetual Maniac. It's my gaming tag. It just turned into politics. Weird, right? So, um, yeah. So, and I, and I don't have like a, a YouTube channel. I don't broadcast myself. So it's basically like an occasional tweet these days. And then, uh, my website and check out my new website when it comes out, um, 
you'll hear about it. Trust me. It's going to be one of the biggest news events for the day that it launches. So, and I'm really excited to have that come out very shortly. Okay. Thank you, Zach. Thank you very much, Sienna. My pleasure.